is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome back to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. Laurie Gregory here with Andy Wakefield and our guest, Jim Moody. Andy, part three of our COVID crazy. Part three. I mean, this is is a series that could run and run right now, but um, yeah. Where do we leave off? Well, Jim, you had posed a great question to Andy before we we had a cliffhanger. We even had Dallas music, in fact, in our last episode. Tom put in some Dallas music for our cliffhanger. So, would you like to uh, update sure. us? Well, this is a this is a timely since the phase three trials and two of the vaccines began uh, with uh, thirty thousand people in each. Uh, and my question to Andy was, and sorry for hitting you hitting with this last time, but if you were the uh, the director of FDA in charge of of approving or disapproving NDA, new, new drug application when it comes in, uh, uh, how would you handle it and what would you do? Because well, those, those will come in now when they finish the phase three trials. Those will come in to FDA sometime around October, uh, and FDA has already issued a guidance document on June 17th saying for all of those applying for temporary licenses and permanent licenses for COVID vaccines, we're going to follow the same basic principles as we do for all other vaccines. FDA has kind of said we're going to do just the same old, same old. Right. Now, that is a much narrower question than the one you posed last time, which was, if you were in charge of the FDA, what would you do, what would you do next? <laughs> and that gave me the option of resigning and going and living in Hawaii. <laughs> This is a much narrower question, and I so I've not had time to consider this, but we can we can tease this one out. But in in response to the broader question of if I were in charge of the FDA, what would I do next? What I would do, and this is particularly reinforced by emerging evidence and presentations by frontline physicians, is that I would um, institute a recommended protocol for the prevention and management of COVID nineteen. And that would include hydroxychloroquine, vitamins A, D, C, an antibiotic. It would also include zinc. And I would make that the recommended protocol on a milligram per kilogram or unit per kilogram body weight basis across the country. You have a federal approach to this problem because it's quite clear from the evidence, the vast weight of evidence is in favor of this, both as a preventative measure and in ameliorating the course of the disease, making COVID-19 a milder disease. And the resistance to this, the extraordinary resistance to this, including the censorship of frontline doctors discussing it, discussing their clinical experience, is really reinforces for me this the imperative of the system to drive the vaccine and vaccine only narrative at the, the expense of the American people. So that would be one thing that I would do out of the gate. The second thing I would do is may seem a little quirky, and we've discussed this before, and that would be to stop. And this is within the FDA's remit, as you've explained to me, Jim, I would stop direct consumer advertising by the pharmaceutical industry. And what I believe that might do is lead to accurate and honest reporting uh, or more accurate and more honest reporting about COVID uh, in all its aspects, including treatment, 
um, because the industry, the media, would no longer be beholden to and influenced by the pharmaceutical companies who clearly stand to make very, very little money out of the preventative and, uh, and treatment protocol that I've just suggested, and a lot of money out of vaccines. And it would mean that in the, in the, back in the, the free market, the media would have to report more honestly, more objectively, uh, in order to compete, in order to sell their works, in order to sell their programs or their newspapers and we would get a more accurate representation of where we are with COVID. So those are my, those would be my two immediate approaches to dealing with this issue. Um, one, a short-term, short to medium-term approach, which really acts in the best interests of the American people to prevent and to treat the disease, and the second, to act in the longer-term interest of the American people by breaking this insidious and extremely dangerous bond between the pharmaceutical industry and the media. So um, now, Jim, to... Well, what, uh, what, what, what kind of a... We'll just take Moderna as an example. They started their clinical trials yesterday. That's the mRNA vaccine out of, uh, out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, what kind of a showing would you require? What would you require the Moderna to, to prove to your satisfaction in order to issue them a license for selling the, their vaccine? I would require a randomized placebo-controlled, true placebo-controlled, with the injection of saline as a placebo. So a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial, double-blinded, so that the, those administering and those receiving are not aware of what is being given or received. Uh, controlled clinical trial, which would last for uh, five years, at least, a minimum of five years. Um, and that's what I would require, and that's what it would be required of a pharmaceutical, uh, and is required of every pharmaceutical, and there is no reason for vaccines to be treated preferentially over pharmaceuticals. In fact, quite the opposite, since they're being given to healthy individuals. Uh, the, the, the standards of safety, the rigor that it's applied to them should be substantially greater. So uh, that's what I would require. I would require that, that those data made available to scrutiny by independent epidemiologists, statisticians who can analyze them. And only when that's done would I be satisfied that this was something that would be available to a population if it turned out to be safe and effective on a voluntary basis and never would it be mandated well no now you know they're unlike uh the uh, trivial diseases they are looking for vaccines for you know mumps is an obvious example the argument here is that since this this uh new novel coronavirus the china virus is killing people at maybe a 2x or a 3x higher rate than the seasonal flu that there's a sense of urgency that people might want to sacrifice uh, some uncertainty for the benefit of changing the mortality and morbidity that they would face from the disease. Yes, I don't think, you see, the problem is it, it comes down to informed consent. And if people knew the history of vaccination, the true history of how one defines safe and effective, what that really means in the real world, 
and what the risks are, the, the true risks are. Let's just say the Moderna vaccine induces autoimmune disease in 20% of the population, that it, autoimmune disease is severe, is painful, is debilitating, is lifelong, is incurable, and is effectively untreatable, except with horrendous medications that bring with it a plethora of their own side effects. If people knew that, would they genuinely take the risk? And it's the job of the FDA to protect people. It's, it's the job of the FDA to protect people from risks that they don't understand because they are not fully aware of the information, and nor should they be. It's hugely complex. So it's the FDA's responsibility to protect those people from the sort of consequences that we anticipate coming about with these experimental vaccines. So that would be my job. That would be my responsibility to provide people with all information that is considered relevant to their well-being and their decision to, to vaccinate or not. Right, but does the, does the right to try, or right to refuse a medical treatment, including a vaccine, which we all believe to be sacred and inalienable, meaning it can never be taken away, or burdened, does that also include the right to someone to take a vaccine that's only been tested for five weeks rather than five years? I mean, the, the question, I guess, is, is there, a, is there a middle ground? Is there an opportunity for those who insist on the vaccine for various reasons, whether it be at age or infirmity, some sort of comorbid condition, insist on having the opportunity to have it? And therefore, is there an obligation to include a third arm of the study which allows those people to to go into a third arm which is unblinded, which gives them the vaccine? Very good question, Jim, and I don't have an immediate answer right. to that. Because remember, there, there's, the, there's the acute events, the syncope, the anaphylaxis that happen within one to two hours after a vaccine. Those are you know, pretty easy to detect. We can get a very instantaneous picture on the safety profile. There's the delayed effects, the, uh, the type 1 and type 2 inflammatory responses, which you can pick up in maybe one to five days. Fever, injection sites, injection site swelling, blah, blah, blah. Then you get into the Asia, the autoimmune type disorders that Professor Schoenfeld has described, and those are take much longer to even show up, uh, much less show up in numbers, you know, sufficient to give you give you you know good population size data. But is certainly five days is too short, five years some would say is too long. Is there a time period, a window where you'd expect to see autoimmune disorders show up, such that the the public's confidence can be increased with every passing day in the safety trial. Well, it's it's a cumulative morbidity. In other words, the, you know, the longer you exist with the risk, the greater the chances of that risk turning into actual disease. And often, autoimmune conditions require some triggering event beyond the initial exposure to turn them into a frank inflammatory pathology. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. To continue the conversation, go to 1986theact.com slash membership, where for $5 a month, you can subscribe and access the Andy Wakefield Podcast in its entirety and much more.